following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Did you know that the purpose of the church is to glorify God? And that sometimes get confused with the mission. The mission of the church is to make maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. But have you ever noticed that making maturing disciples is hard work? In fact, getting people to, to believe in Christ is hard work. It's, it, it sometimes, sometimes it's like you, you plant the seed of God and it just grows quickly. It's like the, the soil was well-nurtured, well-cultivated, and prepared to produce a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Other times you put the seed of God out there and it's like they just bounce off a heart like it's cement. And other times it's like you're trying to dig through soil and it's, it's got rocks and roots and you think you're making progress only to find more roots and then the dirt starts tumbling back into the hole making it difficult to plant the seed. That's what it's oftentimes like. Why is it so hard to carry out our mission? It is hard to make disciples because the heart of humans is dead, are dead to God. And this is a problem because unless you and I repent of our sin and trust Jesus for salvation, we will not see the kingdom of God. Translation, it means judgment in hell. That's what it's talking about there. The task in human strength is impossible. The task is impossible. And yet Jesus entrusted a ragtag group of, of 120 random people, almost seemingly random disciples, who are primarily from Galilee of all places. A bunch of nobodies from a nowhere town. And he chose them and entrusted them with the task of transforming the world, beginning in Jerusalem and then extending out to Judea and then to Samaria and to the end of the world, even to little old Ellington. And as they went along, people were to be transformed, men, women, children, even societies with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were probably a bit intimidated by the task. But if I can read anything about Peter and understand him, I suspect he was determined to get to work. But then Jesus said, go ahead and take a 10-day break and just wait till the Holy Spirit shows up. Jesus told them to wait until the Holy Spirit arrives, because when the Holy Spirit does arrive, this ragtag group of followers will become power tools in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ as he builds his kingdom. They would become power tools in the master carpenter's hands. So they waited for the Holy Spirit to arrive with power, just as Jesus said that he would. That would happen unless, that is, Jesus was still dead, or was not in fact the Son of God and would be therefore unable or unqualified to ask God the Father to send the Holy Spirit. But he did and he came. And soon the disciples would see that what Jesus was talking about when he said, behold, the fields are white for the harvest. The harvest of souls into the kingdom of God would happen when the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples of Christ, empowering them to carry out their mission to make maturing disciples of Jesus. Why do I emphasize that, making maturing disciples of Christ? Here's why. It is good to pray a prayer of saving faith. When Jesus didn't say, go get people to pray a prayer, he said, make disciples. 
as we continue the story of us, the Lord Jesus and his church, the Holy Spirit was sent to the church like a gift from a groom to his bride, and that gift enables us to do what Christ has commanded us to do and to be what Christ has commanded us to be. And we'll see in Acts 2 the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Please stand, if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought this morning as I attempt to open the word of God. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and in our church. Let revival begin this morning. Let us be transformed people who bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Whenever the Holy Spirit shows up and does something amazing, people don't always respond the way they probably should. Uh, uh, for example, in my life, when I was filled with the Spirit, I sort of began to change. I gave up uh, a sin, and, and specifically for me, the sin was, it had to do a lot with anger, a lot to do with drinking, and a lot to do with the way I spoke. I did not glorify God with my words. And I'm not going to tell you that I changed immediately, but God began this process of change, and, and people started to notice. And uh, my friends, who I still care about to this day, uh, they thought I was weird because I went from kind of doing all these things that I always did to all of a sudden now I'm serving in the youth. And instead of celebrating New Year's Eve the way I always did, I was serving in a New Year's Eve lock-in with teenagers at church. That was weird to them, and I can see why. But they mocked me. And it sort of, I didn't become angry at them, but I knew in that moment when I heard a friend of mine mocking me, he thought I was outside of earshot. When I heard him mocking me for my faith, I knew that what Jesus had been telling me for a while was correct, that light can have no partnership with darkness. Now, that didn't mean they weren't my friends anymore, but it did mean that they couldn't influence me the way they used to influence me. And that changed some things. But listen, people mocked me because the Lord had filled me with the Spirit and began changing me. But I am certainly not the first Christian to endure that type of experience. Maybe many of you have. But I was thinking back as I was going over this sermon, I was thinking about one of my old pastors. His name was John Bunny. He grew up in a, a pastor's home, but he was sort of a rough dude for a long time. In fact, he uh, was in the Merchant Marines, which I don't know exactly what they do, but he was not exactly a, a, a soft man. 
In fact, one of my favorite stories about him is that a, uh, when he became a pastor, a man came into the office because his wife had been coming to church, and he said, this guy's in his 70s at this point, and this 40-year-old man, my age, gets in his face and says, you tell my wife to stop coming to this church. And he says, well, I can't do that. And so the guy gets up, stands over the desk, and says, I'm telling you, and Pastor Bunny, he knocked him out. 70 years old, flattened him. That's the guy. So he gets saved, and when he's in a, a young, um, probably roughly close to my age, he gets saved, and he's working at a, 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 milk fa- a milk bottling factory, and they deliver milk back in the day. And, and so he's not participating in the jokes anymore. And finally, his friends at work say, Bunny, what's up with you? And he, said, he didn't want to tell him at first, and finally he says, I, I got saved. And they mocked him. And he would tell this story about a guy picked up a drum and starts beating this drum with a hammer, saying, bong, bong. Bunny got saved and just mocking him all around the warehouse. But that old Pentecostal preacher did not back down or walk away from Christ. Listen, we see that the early church was also mocked because God had shown up and began to change them and empower them. Listen, when you are spirit-filled, you will be empowered to change. You will be able to witness for Christ in public. You will be able to walk with Christ, changing your life. I'm not talking perhaps about immediate change where everything just all of a sudden you're perfect. What I am saying is that God enables you to become the type of person he wants you to become. And he will enable you, and I would say give you the desire to worship Jesus Christ, to ascribe or attribute worth to him by the, what, the songs that you sing and the way that you live and the words that you speak. Why, that is why the Holy Spirit came, because we need the power of God flowing through us if we are going to be and do what Christ calls us to be and do. You know, as Baptists, we have a fantastic model for how we do ministry. I have heard people from other denominations talk about how good what we have is, how organized we are. But we can get to the place where we think our well-organized churches is what's going to save and transform people. God uses them as tools. But make no mistake, we need the power of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be and do what God has called us to be and do. The Holy Spirit came to empower the church for witness. There were 120-ish disciples in that upper room. They were united. They were praying and they were obeying Christ. And here's an interesting thing. If you look throughout history, what you will see is that the great revivals of church history were were always preceded by unity, prayer, and a determination to obey Jesus Christ. Unity, prayer, and obedience. This is what sparks revival. What is revival? Is it a special event in fall and spring? No, at least that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Those are useful tools that God can use and has used to spark revival in the church. Revival is a dramatic transformation of Christians and the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in worship, walk, and witness that brings maximum glory to Jesus Christ. Revival is... A dramatic transformation of Christians and the church by the power of the Holy Spirit resulting in worship, walk, and witness that brings maximum glory to Jesus Christ. 
The revival and transformation of God's people leads to evangelism and transformation of the surrounding community as they encounter a spirit-empowered witness to the glory of God. See, ultimately, revival is about the people of God becoming transformed by the gospel, and that has a massive impact on the surrounding community. And I am praying that our church and community would experience such a revival. In the weeks that follow, I ask you to join me in that prayer. Now, many aspects of the day of Pentecost are unique, but being filled by the Holy Spirit is not unique. There were there people who were, they talked about all these people from different parts of the world, like Mesopotamia and Judea. These were Jewish people who had been spread out from Jerusalem, but they had come back as they did annually to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. In Acts 2, there were sort of fireworks. There were tongues as of fire that appeared and they would rest on people. And then there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. I've never heard of that event being replicated anywhere. And they were then filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke in tongues. So let's talk about these last two things that I mentioned. There has been a lot of controversy about what happened in Acts 2. Are you guys aware of that? That there has sort of been controversy amongst brothers and sisters about what exactly happened. Why is there controversy? Well, part of it is the language that the Bible actually uses to describe the event. For example, Acts 1.5, Jesus says, you're going to go ahead and wait and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you will be empowered. And then in Acts 1.8, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And then in Acts 2.4, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And how about you? If I was inclined to want to argue about words, there's three, three ways, three opportunities to argue. No, we're baptized. No, we're filled. No, the Spirit came upon them. They're speaking about the same event, trying to describe a marvelous act of God in human lingo. They're talking about the same thing. And this, this event in Acts 2 marked them as members of the body of Christ and empowered them to bear witness. A second reason for the controversy is that the believers spoke in tongues. This is not even debatable when you read the text. So what, why the debate? Well, let's do a little Bible study, shall we? Acts, look at two, verse 4 again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jump down to verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 11, second, the bottom of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Acts 2 and also Acts 10, when the believers were filled with the Spirit, they spoke in, here it is, known human languages that they had never learned before. It wasn't tongues of angels, it was known human languages. That that is the case is clearly indicated in the text. Now, interestingly, when the Apostle Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9, he does not speak in foreign, foreign languages. In his case, something like scales fell from his eyes. 
He did not speak in unknown languages that he'd never learned before. Now, there are some who have the opinion that this has ceased completely and never happens anymore. Here's my response to that. Primarily, for the most part, that does not happen anymore. But there have been events in church history where that has been revived. One of those was in America in around 1908 in a thing called the Azusa Street Revival. These people were not seeking to speak in tongues. They were looking for a revival. And what happened is they spoke and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I had the opportunity to meet with a man who was not there. His parents were at the Azusa Revival. He's a man that I respect greatly. His name is Stanley Horton, actually. Dr. Stanley Horton, Harvard-educated Stanley Horton. And we used to call him the sage because he was 90 years old and he was still writing books and articles for missions work. We, we would go visit him and he shared with us that when those people spoke in tongues, they were speaking in known human languages. And the way they knew that is there were people there from other countries for the revival. And they said, they're speaking in my language and they're praising God. This has happened but primarily it seems to have tapered off. Now what happened in Acts 2 and Acts 10 seems to be different than what was going on in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm not going to go there this morning because that is another text for another day. I only got one sermon for you. But the scriptures in those passages seem to be referring to something else going on. Whatever it was, it was not to be done in church unless there was an interpreter because... No one would be edified by it because no one would understand it. Whatever the case was, in Acts 2, the audience made up of pious Jews did understand because God had empowered these uneducated Galileans to bear witness to the wonderful works of God in their own languages. And they came from everywhere. Why do I keep emphasizing the fact that they're Galileans? Well, because the Bible does. Here's why. To uh, Galilee was not like New York City where the finest schools and the epitome of culture was taking place. It was none of those things. These were uneducated people. They didn't even have access to high education. So they were speaking language that they couldn't possibly have known. That's why it was emphasized. God was building his kingdom with nobodies from nowheresville. That ought to encourage us this morning. God still builds his kingdom with average people, but you and I must get to the place where we don't think we're too special, that we don't need the power of God flowing through us. Now, the miracle was in the speaking, not in the hearing. Why do I say that? That also has been controversial. Why do I say that with such dogmatism? Here's why. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to come upon the believers, not the unbelievers. And that's still the case today. They stood up and they spoke as they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in languages that they had never heard before. And those people heard them speaking in their own language. There's no miracle in understanding when things are spoken in your language. But it is a miracle when people who don't know the language somehow step up and speak your language. God has empowered his church to bear witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 was primarily about empowering God's people to glorify Christ in the world. The church 
I might suggest to you once again, has survived immense official and unofficial persecution because she has been empowered, guided, and protected by God. The very fact that these nobodies survived at all is testimony to the hand of God acting in human history to preserve that group. Why did God do it this way? I think we get an idea of his mindset from Zechariah 4.6. This is what it says. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Translation, he don't need us in all of our intellect, all of our organizational wisdom and our fantastic history and tradition. He uses us in spite of us, not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Holy Spirit is received by all Christians, regardless of race, class, status, wealth, education, income. You can be rich and receive the Holy Spirit. You can be poor. You can be educated. You can be uneducated. Jesus Christ is not impressed with our status. He gives us the Holy Spirit because we put our trust in him so that we might glorify Christ. Three ways. By witnessing to his saving acts among the nations and our neighbors and worshiping Christ singing his praises, giving of our tithes and offerings, worshiping him, walking with him, living in obedience to him. You know that when we walk in obedience to Christ, it bears witness to his glory? You better believe when someone, someone sees a transformed Christian, it bears witness to the power and glory of Jesus Christ. Church, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be and do what God has told us to be and do. Some are, are, have stated, and I suppose it's well stated, that the whole, you've already got as much of the Holy Spirit as you're ever going to get. The question is, how much of the Spirit of you does the Spirit have? And that's a good point. Nevertheless, we'll stick with the biblical language here. He says you need to be filled with the Spirit. Christians, are you filled? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Dr. Horton asked a fantastic question. How would you know? Well, in his mind, you would speak in tongues. I don't agree with him. I love him as a brother in Christ, but I think he was wrong. The way you would know is if you glorify God. You glorify God in your witness. Do you speak about Christ and the things of God specifically when you are not in church? Do you glorify God with your witness? Do you speak about Christ and the things of God specifically when you are not at church? When you are at home, at the office, I guess wherever you guys work, in the trees, in the forest, when you talk, when you are out there, do you talk about the glory of Christ? Do you talk about him at home? Do you glorify God in your worship? Is Jesus important enough, amazing enough to you that you would sing his praises? You know, one of the things I want to brag about you guys for a second, sometimes I mentioned a couple weeks back that Ben has taught us some new songs and that's not always comfortable for us. And where I'm standing, seated, I can't hear what's going on behind me because I'm right under the speakers. And there was a new song, and I thought, I wonder if anyone's singing. And I turned around, and I saw people with their eyes closed praising God. People that I kind of thought wouldn't do that, just to be honest with you. And that's a good sign. Because what you are saying is the glory of God is more important than my comfort zone. And that is a good sign about the health of our church. Will you worship Jesus? Will you worship him with giving? Did you know that giving and tithing is part of your worship of God? And do you glorify God with your walk? Has knowing Christ 
resulted in abandoning sin. I'm not talking about sinful perfection. But listen, as children of God, we, the Bible says we saw it in 1 John. If we say we're without sin, we're liars. But the Bible does not want us to live a lifestyle that is about walking in sinfulness. Has it transformed your walk in any way that you can point to? How then are we to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Number one, I think decide that you want, that you strongly, intensely desire to obey God. Do you want to obey God is the first thing. Number two, pray for the power to be and do what God calls you to be and do. To be holy, to be a witness, to worship him in spirit and truth. And then three, decide to unite with your church family, other believers, and most definitely with your spouse. Did you know that the Bible warns us that God won't answer our prayers when we are mistreating our spouses? Unite with your spouse. Honor them. Maybe they're not believers, but you certainly can honor them. In short, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, surrender to God and his will for your life by, to de- by determining to worship him and walk with him and to bear witness to him, not just on Sunday, but every day. How would it look to worship him every day? Do we bust out the hymnal at home? I suppose you could. There's not, certainly nothing that I would, I would never say, don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. Certainly when you pray, when you step back and say, I'm going to sit down and pray and talk to God and ask for his intervention, you are saying, he is so good and worthy that I want him to intervene in my life. I want him to dictate the course of my day. That's worship. It's also connecting to God. Certainly you could sing a hymn. You could also put on some music and go right along with him. And spend time in the scriptures. Some of you guys, sometimes we can get the impression that pastor is some, a preacher is something like a, a religious entertainer. I am not. You've probably figured that out after 37 months with me. It's not what I do here. What I am doing, what we are doing, is worshiping God by saying, I'm going to set aside at least 30 minutes to hear what God would have to say to us. That's worship. But you know, you can do that at home too. In fact, I would tell you that's a very quick way to begin being transformed by the Holy Spirit. He talks to us through the word and he transforms us. Worship him daily. Walk with him daily. Determine to live a holy life, avoiding sin. But you say, I've tried that before and I have tripped and fallen. Welcome to Christianity. God didn't call us to easy things. But what he did say is if we've tripped and fallen seven times, if you're a righteous person, if you're a saint by faith in Christ, you'll get back up. And he may be calling you to get back up and follow him once again and witness to him. Glorify Christ in public. Be willing to talk about him. So the question for you this morning is, has knowing Christ resulted in a life that is being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? I ask you again, has knowing Christ resulted in a life that is being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Why do I emphasize this being transformed? I don't know about you, but I haven't arrived yet. I still get really angry sometimes. I still think things that I ought not to think, and I have said things I ought not to say. This is your preacher acknowledging that I'm a sinner who's still being saved by the grace of God. We are still being transformed. Now, if the answer to the question is no, that ought to concern you. 
And so I want to say this with both candor and compassion. If knowing Christ has not resulted in transformation in your worship, your walk, or your witness, not just on Sunday, it could mean that you don't know Jesus, that you are not saved and are facing an eternity in hell. You know, I shared the gospel the other day with a man. It's kind of cool. I have these bracelets. I have the three circles gospel presentation on them, and he noticed it. So I started to talk about it. And when I started getting into salvation, he said, I know I'm saved because I survived the surgery. Unfortunately, our conversation got interrupted and we never got to finish it. That is not a sign that you have been saved. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ is the question. And is he living in you? Has he taken up the throne of your heart? You will know when the Holy Spirit is transforming you. That will be a good sign that you are saved by grace through faith. It could also be that you need a personal revival. But you could also be lost. Examine yourself whether or not you're in the faith. When I, was a, I got saved when I was six years old. And from, I did pretty well. I've told you this before. But from about the age of 17 to 24, I did not live for God in any way that you could point to. Oh, I went to church, hung over. I even had a sister-in-law who was a probation officer and she could smell it on me. And I say that to say this, I have often wrestled with this question. Was I saved in 1983 or was I saved in 2001 when I gave my life back to Christ? Now, I am convinced that it was in 1983, but here's what I want you to understand. The reason why it was hard to answer the question is that there was no evidence in my life that I knew Jesus Christ besides the fact that I showed up on Sunday morning. Because that's what we always did when you're a kitnoia. That is not proof. Now, I've come to the conclusion that I was saved in 1983, but it is good to examine ourselves to determine whether we are not in the faith. On the day of Pentecost, there were pious Jews who had made the journey to Jerusalem to honor God. They were good people. They were good people who were destined for hell because they did not know Jesus Christ. And we'll see next week that many of them did come to faith in Christ. But I want you to understand something. Religiously attending church is a good thing to do but it is not proof that you know Jesus. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? When we think about how we apply this, I want to think of three things. Number one, pray for revival in your life is the first place to start. And when we start saying so-and-so needs to get right with God, well, fine, maybe they do, but let's start with you or I. Start with ourselves. Pray for revival in our life, that we would be a zeal in our life for the things of God. Pray for revival in our church. Would you join me in that prayer this week? I have been praying of this. The Lord has convinced me as I've studied through the, just for the first one in a third chapter of Acts that this is what the American church needs. It doesn't need better methods, better books, better seminaries. We've got, we've got those things. It isn't that. We've begun to rely on our own strength and ability to carry the day. That's no longer effective. We need a revival in the church, starting with our own 
Pray for revival. Pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Determine to worship him daily. Determine to walk with him daily. And determine to worship Christ and the world. As Ben comes for our song of invitation. Church, this is undoubtedly an opportunity for you to come back home to Christ to say, I need revival, to pray for it in our church. Maybe you're walking strong with Jesus Christ. That's fantastic. Praise him for that, but pray for our church. Pray for all the churches in Ellington because we live in a town that undoubtedly has people who don't know Jesus. We also have people who do know Jesus that need transformation. Pray for that. But maybe this morning you've never come to the place where you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something. Jesus wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit and he will transform you. And you will you receive that when you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And that begins the moment you say, Lord God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm believing the truth about Jesus Christ and I will confess that. When you confess the truth of God, you are witnessing testifying to the truth. This morning, if you're ready to do that, I invite you to make your way to the front during the song of invitation. Testify to me the truth that Jesus Christ is offering you salvation this morning. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.